Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome into the Hard Count. I'm J.D. Pakel. Nick Brake doing the real heavy lifting. But this is the people show. You know the drill, every single thing that you know and that you love about the beautiful game of college football. Well, guess what, folks? It happens here on the On3 YouTube channel every single day. The Hard Count is live on Tuesdays. It's live on Thursdays. And that is the, the best part of our week, of our work week. I put work week uh, in very big quotation marks because what we do is the farthest thing from work. But we have a phenomenal show lined up for you. We are getting very, very close to the end of the regular season. We talk about it a lot on here. Enjoy it. Enjoy every single college football Saturday that you get because you and I both know it. There's no off season, but the Saturdays that have games are a lot more enjoyable than the ones that don't. So tailgate like you mean it. Wake up early for college game day or big noon kickoff, whichever one is your favorite. Uh, also, make sure you jump on our spaces. I mean, that's probably the first thing you should do. But after the spaces is done, go enjoy your favorite pregame show. It's a beautiful time of year. It's a beautiful thing that we get to experience. It only comes one season a year. But like I said, huge show lined up for you. Some very sneaky big-time matchups on the horizon. Georgia at Kentucky. We are about to break down in a matter of minutes. The dogs are a force. Kentucky's in that limping mode. They just lost to Vanderbilt, and Vanderbilt broke their SEC loss streak. And so what do you get from an animal that's backed into a corner like Kentucky is right now? Uh, hint, their best shot. Going to talk a little bit about the Illinois at Michigan matchup because Michigan got their sights set on Ohio State for a good reason. The biggest game of the season, arguably, for all of the college football landscape, if we're calling a spade a spade, that will be the epitome of a playoff game when it gets there. But first, you got to play Illinois, similar to Kentucky, kind of just limping into Ann Arbor, and maybe Chase Brown's going to play. Maybe he's not. We'll see. It's a dangerous spot for Michigan. If you look too far ahead, you've experienced humility, kind of the way that college football works. We'll take a break from the predictions and get to the amazing story that is LSU in 2022. Brian Kelly shows up. He says family funny. We're all talking about, is he a fit in Baton Rouge? Is he going to work out there? Well, they're playing for an SEC title. They've already wrapped up their side of the conference, and uh, they're going to go play Georgia in Atlanta. So how did LSU get here? I think that's a very fair question that we have to ask. Going to talk about that in its entirety. The battle for the victory belt. A rivalry that is very near and dear to my heart. Growing up in Southern California, USC goes the across the street trip to UCLA. They'll play that game at the Rose Bowl, the best venue in college football. Uh, USC, don't look now, they're not just eyeing a Pac-12 title, but they're also going to be in that college football playoff conversation if they continue to win. So very, very big game. UCLA, of course, being the rival, they would love to spoil that going to finish the whole thing out with not one but two Pac-12 breakdowns USC at UCLA and then Utah going to Autzen and playing uh, the Oregon Ducks who will not be in the college football playoff but still have a very strong chance 
to make and win the Pac-12. And Utah is trying to reassert their dominance as the big dog in the Pac-12. Because that's what they've been for the past few years, right? I mean, Utah has really for the most part, been the dominant program. Whether they're winning it every single year, every single year or not, uh, that's what Utah believes they are. Would like to prove that again as Oregon, kind of that new kid on the block with Dan Lanning, and we'll see what Bo Nix is going to be like in that game. If he's in that game, I lean towards he will be. All that's to say, we'll break that down, give you our prediction. At the end of the program, y'all already know the drill. If you're new here, welcome. Subscribe and join the party. Uh, you can literally join the party, jumping in the chat, shooting a question over our way. Nick Brake, the keeper of the queue, the heavy lifter, going to make sure we get to those and answer those as efficiently, as effective as possible. But Nick Brake is better equipped to do that. I'm better equipped to answer that if you get those questions in right now. So don't wait till the end of the show. Throw your question right now, and we'll do our very best to get to it. Like I said, live today. We're also live at this exact same time on Thursday. So if we don't get to your question today, come back. We'll run it back, Turbo. We'll get you on Thursday, and we'll have a real good time. Let's not waste any more time, shall we? Georgia going to Kentucky, a 22-and-a-half-point favorite. Game is at 3.30 Eastern, and they are all business. Like you would think after, you know, they, they got the big win in Athens over Tennessee and then they go and play Mississippi State and Starkville. Kirby Smart, I, I don't know how much Georgia fans appreciate this or don't appreciate this, but he's reminding me more and more of Nick Saban, the way that he talks about the process and Georgia's internal standard and what they're doing every single week. He understands humility is only a week away. And so if you think they're somehow looking past Kentucky, you are very, very much mistaken. Kentucky has their undivided attention, and the mission for Georgia is still the mission. 1-0 each and every week to Atlanta and beyond. That is what's in front of the dogs, and they are still in hunting mode. They're going to get their best shot from everybody around them. When you got that block G on your helmet, you get the absolute best from your opponent. I promise you, it's their Super Bowl. For Georgia, though, the main thing's the main thing. Go 1-1, excuse me, go 1-0 uphold the standard internally. So for Kentucky, like we already talked about a little bit at the opening of this program, they're limping. Lost to Vanderbilt. It's humbling. It's a humbling thing to lose to a program that hadn't won an SEC game. And I don't know how many games. They got the streak broken. Uh, they're limping. And like I said, they're going to give their best punch to Georgia. Like you want to know some way to salvage some pride just to go and knock off the number one team in the country. I promise you, Coach Stoops and company, they would love to do that. So are they hurting a little bit from this past week? Sure, but they are not wasting any time licking their wounds because they understand they got the big dog coming to their house. Tremendous opportunity for them. I always say at the beginning of every show, but the way that we break down these games is based on hinge points. And so depending on which way these matchups swing, we think that gives whoever that favors a better chance to win the football game. So the first hinge point that I'm looking at in this game, who gets better position in terms of the arm wrestle? Like whenever you arm wrestle somebody, you and I both know that thing is won or lost in the first one to two seconds. The equivalent of that in this game to me is like the first quarter, quarter and a half. If Georgia jumps out early, let's say Georgia gets up 10-0 in the first quarter, well, they're so physical, they're so multiple offensively, they're so freakish defensively to where they can sort of just tilt that wrist, apply that pressure, use that strength and physicality, and just make you submit. 
Kentucky's a good football team, but quite frankly, they're scoring 22 points a game. Will Levis, the NFL draft loves him, hasn't been able to muster a ton of offense for Kentucky. So we'll leave that there. But with how good Georgia is in the trenches, if they're able to just play that kind of bully ball up front, they're running for 200 yards a game, they're giving up less than 100 rushing yards a game, if they're able to just sort of force that submission, it's going to be tough the rest of the way. It's going to be tough the rest of the way for Kentucky. Now, on the flip side of that, for Kentucky, if you can draw first blood, and we say this a lot when we break down games with Kentucky, to me, it starts with some sort of explosive play in that first quarter. So Will Levis got to live up to that first-round grade, especially in the first 15 minutes of play, whether it's Dane Key going deep, whether it's Barry and Brown, Tavian Robinson. Somebody has to make an explosive play vertically in the pass game because guess what that does to the defense? Causes them to mellow out a little bit, have to respect the deep pass a little bit more because you just got hurt on it. And then you can lean on who your best player is. And Will Levis is phenomenal. If you say he's the best player on Kentucky's roster, I want to argue with you too much. But the best player who needs to be the best player, rather, in this game, to me at least, is Chris Rodriguez. He is the individual that if they win the game, it will be because of him. He's averaging right around five and a half yards of carry. If they can get out to, let's even say, a seven-point lead, much less if they get a three-point lead and can kind of hold that, kind of a stalemate, going back to that arm wrestling metaphor, if they can force a stalemate and just feed Chris Rodriguez and have some success on the ground with the secondary having to play back and respect that, that's going to bode well. And the longer this game stretches, the more opportunity there is for weird stuff to happen, which sounds funny to say out loud, but anytime you have a 20-point dog fighting against the number one ranked team in the country, you need some weird things to happen. And staying in the game, causing Georgia to have to play four quarters in a game where I promise you nobody wants to play four quarters when they're 20-point favorites, and it's late in the year, and Kirby Smart said it, this is the time of the year people start turning down contact, and Chris Rodriguez seeks contact, that favors Kentucky the longer this kind of game goes. So one way that this could get weird, in my opinion, Barry and Brown is a freakish return man for Kentucky, only a freshman, actually from this area of Tennessee, if I'm not mistaken. If he can rip off a couple of big returns, much like he did against Ole Miss, that could be kind of the leveling of the playing field. Now, it's a very big if. Again, weird things have to happen that you can't necessarily account for. We're going to try to do it on this program, but that would be what I would look for for Kentucky if you were going to have a chance in this game. Also should mention that Will Levis, his offensive line isn't great. Going to touch more on that in a second. At least when it comes to pass pro, they're not great. Uh, get him moving. We saw them against Florida do a really good job using play action, rolling him out, making sure he's not just a, a standing target back there. Because if he's a standing target, Georgia will tee off on him. So the first quarter is paramount to success, especially for Kentucky. Because if Georgia gets the upper hand, Georgia gets that lean, could be over before it gets started. Second hinge point I'm looking at, and this is not really a hinge point so much as a statement. Let's just be real with ourselves here. We talk about how Kentucky could pull off the upset. This game is about Georgia. This game is about what version of Georgia shows up. And that's not to say a bad version of Georgia has ever shown up in any game, but I think the question that helps me illustrate this point best, what version of Georgia would have to be there for an upset? In addition to that, how much better would Kentucky have to play from their average performance? 
Georgia scoring 41 points a game right now. They're allowing right around 12. Kentucky's scoring 23 points a game. They're allowing right around 20. Based on my math, a 60% effective Georgia would be right around 24 points scored. If you can somehow force Georgia to score 24 points, that's probably the world you want to live in if you're Kentucky. But I think a lot of it does hinge on what's Georgia's approach. We praise them so much on this show because of what they do internally. I promise you this game will be tough for Georgia because it's an opponent. You're going to get their best shot and all that. The toughest thing for Georgia is the week of practice before Kentucky. Like Bloody Tuesday, all that they do behind closed doors in Athens, that's what really sets the tone for this game. And so if they can have a good week of practice behind closed doors, they can control the internal and build forward and not eat that rat poison like Nick Saban likes to talk about, they should be in good shape. If they do come out there with like a 60% version of themselves, which is a very big if, but I'm telling you, that's what it would take, then maybe this becomes an interesting matchup. Even if they do score 24 points, Kentucky still has their work cut out for them. But I go back to that whole statement I did to start this part of the show, as part of the segment. It's about Georgia. If Georgia doesn't beat Georgia, they're going to be in good shape. And that's kind of the backbreaker for me in this whole thing. The size and the speed of Georgia defensively is just like a storm for Kentucky. You know it's coming. You saw it on film. You've read the scouting report. You know they got some dogs. No pun intended. They got some dudes. They have a very unique blend of size, but even more so, I think, team speed. And so that defensive line, scary, right? Jalen Carter, going to play for an NFL team here very, very soon. But on top of that, you got guys like Smile Munden. You got Javon Bullard, potentially, if he's able to go and is healthy, has a little contusion going on right now. We'll see if he's able to play. But he's a freak. Talk about toughness, size, speed. I think that's just going to overwhelm Kentucky because Kentucky isn't a team that's going to necessarily spread it out and try and take advantage of angles and get you out of position. Kentucky runs a pro-style offense, meaning we're going to line it up, we're going to hand it to our guys, we're going to do play action, and we're going to try and win our matchups. Every single matchup in this game, I don't care how you look at it, it favors Georgia. Supplement that with the freakish athleticism we just talked about with Georgia and what they're not giving up on the ground, so you can't really set up the pass too well. And then in addition to that, the offensive line for Kentucky is near dead last in terms of sack percentage with their snaps. Of all of their snaps, 13% of those are resulting in sacks. It's tough for Will Levis. Just drew the short end of the stick. You check the weather app, and you got the storm coming. That is the Georgia defense. So for our prediction, I think we see Will Levis get forced into some turnovers. I think the offense for Georgia just continues to progress forward. I mean, I didn't even mention Stetson Bennett at all in this game. I haven't even mentioned him once in this breakdown. Whether he has a big day through the air, whether he turns around and hands it to McIntosh, Dejan Edwards, pick your poison. The dogs will force Kentucky to submit, and they just continue to keep the main thing the main thing, and they go 1-0 this week. I think they cover that spread, and they win the game 43-17 to at Kentucky's place. The dogs are rolling. I've said it before. Kirby Smart and company, they're on a tear. They're playing their best ball in November, too. Surprise, surprise. All great championship teams end up playing their ball right around this time of year. So we'll see what happens there, but we like Georgia 
to roll and to roll pretty comfortably. Folks, if you haven't yet subscribed to the channel, we'd love to have you along for the ride. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button. It helps us to do more of what you ultimately would like to see. So we're going to break down Illinois going to Michigan. Michigan is 17.5 point favorite. Games at noon Eastern. Before we do that, though, I want to make a quick programming note, quick housekeeping note, rather. A lot of you tagged us in that Michigan hype video, and that was really cool to see. Like That was exciting. It was fun for us. It's fun to see y'all interact with it. And we obviously, like I said, think that's cool. We enjoy that. But I want to make sure I note this. Anytime something positive with this show happens on a larger scale, it's, yes, like a positive thing here, but it's a, it's a testament to our audience to what y'all are doing. Because it's great we get included in the hype video, but nobody's picking out our clips from a segment we do if it doesn't have some views behind it or some viewership. People in the creative department are saying, oh, okay, people like this show. Let's go ahead and pick that segment out and put it there. So all I'm trying to say is that's great, obviously, for people over here on this side of the screen, uh, but it's a program win. We use the phrase a lot in you know the football world, we, us, ours. Team win, getting the hype video. So all around, good work. Back to the prediction. Illinois goes to Michigan. Michigan is 17.5-point favorite, noon Eastern kick. Jim Harbaugh described it as a happy mission as far as Michigan's just pursuit to charge on towards that game against Ohio State, which they play next week. Can they handle business first against an Illinois team that's limping a little bit? She came up with a loss against Purdue. Uh, physically are not at full strength. Chase Brown, we'll see what his status is as we get closer to the game. At the time of us being live right now, we don't have anything definitive about his status. Uh, but for, for them, it's an opportunity to revive some legitimacy because Illinois, for a while there, had an outside shot. If they win the Big Ten with only one loss and they could maybe you know, have a clear path to the college football playoff if they handle their business, well, that's not the case anymore. But I promise you, if they could knock Michigan out of contention the week before Ohio State, that would do a lot for them when it comes to the offseason. Like, that would be something you can hang your hat on if you're a senior within that program. So, Illinois, still a lot to play for. And they're going to give their best shot to Michigan, as Michigan is accustomed to getting. My question in terms of some of these hinge points, does Michigan go yard in the pass game? Like, we've talked about it a little bit on this program in the past, but Michigan runs the ball so effectively, and as a Michigan fan, you're happy about that. You never turn down a great win and a win where you can impose your will running the football, but you know and I know there may be a point, especially in that game against Ohio State, where you have to open it up. J.J. McCarthy's got a great arm. The potential of what he could be is why you have him at quarterback, and he's shown a lot of great things and really confirmed why he is the quarterback, but you still want to see that arm talent flash. And so in a game like this, Illinois is going to be the best secondary you've played against. Devin Witherspoon, a guy that's going to be in the NFL here pretty soon. I mean, he, he is a legitimate NFL defensive back. And Illinois is going to say, all right, let's line up in man coverage. We'll play physical with you. We got pretty good size. Our smallest DB is like 5'11", so we're all around six foot plus. Like, let's line it up and play ball. They're going to challenge Michigan in that regard. Going to leave them on an island, let them play. Can Michigan connect on those deep passes? Because if they can, well, guess what? Then you have to commit more resources to the back end, which are resources you're not committing to that stacked box. And Blake Quorum was asked about it last week. Are teams trying to do stuff different to y'all in the run game? He's like, yeah, absolutely. 100% we're getting stacked boxes. We're getting more safeties rolled down. 
Well, if you start getting hit for some 50-yard-plus pass plays, you can't afford to roll that safety down. you got to have my guy back playing center field, making sure Ronnie Bell isn't running past him. And so what it comes down to is they have to win those one-on-one matchups on the outside. I look to Cornelius Johnson as one of those guys that I think could be the X factor in this game in terms of those deep passes. They've tried to get him the ball on a couple of them, been really, really close. I think this is the week where they connect on it. I also think this is the week where they dial it up a little bit more because you know who you play next. And if you walk into that game against Ohio State, having never really hit on the deep pass that recently, there's a little bit more hesitation to pull the trigger deep, or at least there's a little bit of hesitation, at least in the game plan, to go deep in that kind of scenario. The point I'm making is you want to have done it before, before you get to Ohio State. So I would expect a higher frequency and a fair amount of dial-up from the Michigan offense in a game like this. Now, if they connect on those deep passes, that means more points. That means more pressure on Illinois to answer scores and to keep pace. And an Illinois offense that's scoring right around 24 points a game, you know where this is going. That's a number that will be difficult to match in terms of what Michigan puts out there and what Illinois tries to do offensively. So I won't go too much more into that, but that's kind of something I'm looking at in terms of Michigan's pass game. Because I look at this second hinge point and Illinois from a formula standpoint in terms of how much they run the football and pass the football, it's going to come down to can they out Michigan, Michigan? Can they beat the Wolverines at their own game? It's a tall task, but they're both running the ball right around 60%, both throwing the football right around 40%. Chase Brown being healthy is something we will monitor very, very closely as this game gets closer. Chase Brown, one of the best running backs in all of college football, got hurt at the end of the Purdue game last week. Brett Bielema got asked about him this week or earlier this week, rather, and just said, I don't have an update. I'm not going to give an update. That would be huge to have him in the game. Right now, as a program, Illinois is averaging 186 yards rushing. They're giving up less than 88. So they're going to try and play that tough brand of football. And it really does come down to the run game because Tommy DeVito has been solid. Heisman Trophy candidate? No. But he gets the ball to guys like Isaiah Williams, and they make plays. I mean, when when they have to, they've made plays. Um, They will still need to make plays in this game. It's going to be important for them to be able to convert on third and seven and to be able to keep the Michigan defense a little off balance if they can. But it really does come down to the run game. You hope you have Chase Brown. If you don't, maybe it's McCray. If he can be healthy enough for this game, maybe it's Reggie Love. But this backfield will be how you stay in the game. In one, because that's just who you are. In two, it allows you to slow the tempo down. And Michigan's offense is a force. You would like them to be on the field as least amount of time as possible. Like That's just the nature of what you want this game to go like for Illinois. I don't think they have enough from a firepower standpoint throwing the football to totally just change styles. So I think it is a matter of can you out Michigan, Michigan in Ann Arbor. It's a tall task, but that's what I think would have to happen for Illinois to end up winning this game. So here's the most important thing for me. Many have tried, many have failed. How does Illinois respond to that second half squeeze from Michigan? I equate it a lot to whenever you put a heavy weight on your back. It's like when you play Michigan. Put that weight on your back, and at first you're like, okay, yeah, this is heavy. I, I, don't, I don't enjoy this. This isn't fun, but I can kind of hold up to this. One quarter goes by. 
two quarters go by. After the first half, teams just look very different than they did in that first half against Michigan. Some of it's Michigan adjusting well. I think a lot of it is the physicality just wears down. Blake Quorum coming downhill on you at power. That's not fun to try and defend for 30-plus minutes of play. That wears you down. A lot of teams, like I said, have looked solid against Michigan in the first half. Penn State, it was a two-point game, 16-14. Michigan ran away with that one. Last week, Nebraska kind of gave a solid fight. They weren't getting gashed too much. I believe the longest run in the first half for Michigan was like 17 yards. Score was 17-3. Michigan just continued to apply that pressure. The defense gave them nothing. Run game kept rolling. Covered a 30-point spread. That's the reality for teams that play Michigan. In the last five games, in the second half alone, Michigan has outscored their opponents 117 to, wait for it, three. Illinois is going to have to be able to, one, produce points in the second half, but two, be able to withstand the pressure applied from the defensive trenches, but even more so, in my opinion, the run game from Michigan. That wears on you. And they just keep chipping away at that rock, and eventually... It cracks. That's what Michigan's been able to do. So my prediction in this game, I just think Michigan is going to continue to use that formula of bully ball. I do think actually they hit on some deep passes this week. I think it's too important for them going into the Ohio State game to connect on at least one or two of those. So they dial it up. I think they do get home. I think it works. I think Michigan wins this game. I think they cover the spread. Final score, Michigan 31, Illinois 13. So Michigan rolls at home. It sets up the matchup of all matchups, the game, with Michigan coming in undefeated. We're going to break down Ohio State's game this coming Thursday on the live show, but I think Michigan wins this game. I think they win relatively comfortably. All right. 136 of you watching. We appreciate you so much. If you haven't yet subscribed to the channel, we'd love to have you. I'll leave it at that. Let's take a break from the predictions. How did we get here with the LSU Tigers? No, no, nothing is wrong with the system right now, at least. Uh, I, I just genuinely need to beg that question. Because this is a football team that was 6-7 and seven last year. Won six games. They weren't great. Like, they were good enough. They were talented enough to get to a bowl game because there's just a lot of talent on that roster. But they have completely revamped the entire program, taking more transfers, to my understanding, than anybody in college football. Brian Kelly, in year one, has this team headed to Atlanta to play for an SEC title. Did not see this coming. Nobody saw this coming. In year one, it was supposed to be a get the bad out, get the good in, kind of build the internal like we talk about with good programs. We'll build ourselves up from the inside. And then maybe in a couple of years, maybe in year two, if we're – being greedy, we can play for an SEC title. A lot of things that they have done effectively to be able to be in the position that they are now. One of my first takeaways with why LSU is where they are, Brian Kelly and this entire staff, quite frankly, has really utilized their personnel. Sometimes coaches in their first year especially will take inventory of their pieces and say, all right, we have these pieces. We're going to make them fit into my way of doing things. And not to say they haven't still done things Brian Kelly's way, but they have very much so played to their personnel. Jaden Daniels is a perfect example. He's a good thrower, really good athlete as well. Leads their team in rushing. 
we're going to make sure a frequent amount of our play calls have an opportunity for Jaden Daniels on the read option to tuck it and run because he's special. We don't need to have him do a three-step drop, five and a half, excuse me, five and a hitch, going deep every other play. Like we can eventually build up to that and do those kind of things, but they're very much so playing to his personnel. And Mike Denbrock as well, you saw what he did with Desmond Ritter, continue to do a great job with quarterbacks, being a quarterback whisperer, like Jaden Daniels, letting him cook and be who he is, I think is a very big part of their success to this point in the year. Also, Harold Perkins, a guy that they just couldn't keep off the field. And maybe that was the issue why we didn't see him on the field earlier was because where do you put him? You don't want to take one of your linebackers off the field. They've utilized him a lot at that nickel position. Great teams, great coaches find a way to play to their personnel. And Harold Perkins obviously has been a game changer for us. I mean, he was the reason why they won that Arkansas game. Don't think that's an overstatement. Four sacks, two forced fumbles. Getting him on the field, making his job very clear to him, hey, we want you to defend their best athlete at quarterback. Go tackle Bryce Young. Go tackle Malik Hornsby. He's done that extremely effectively, so that's great coaching. That's also great buy-in from this locker room. And that's kind of the next thing I want to get to. Brian Kelly deserves a ton of credit, but you can set a bunch of rules and culture before a program. That program still has to buy in. And we, as human beings, we're herd animals. And so what I mean by saying that is you still have to have a leader somewhere in that locker room that's going to lead this herd forward. And so the leaders in that locker room, guys like B.J. Ojolari, have done a phenomenal job leading by example and spearheading the, the effort to buy in. Because it hasn't, it hasn't been something that was already in place and Brian Kelly just inherited a good culture. I think LSU fans would tell you there were times at the end of last year where you had guys unofficially waving the white flag in the previous regime. You had guys saying, no, me over this program. Forget the we, it's about, it's about me is kind of a, a thing that coaches would loosely say out there, the we over me, me over we, that whole kind of thing. Like that was sort of the makeup of what this program was. And so to have a total 180 and buy in with the efficacy and the totality that they have to this point in the year is really, really impressive. And you can't say enough good things about the leaders in that locker room getting them to being at this point. Because in the day and age of college football where you have – so many options, so much mobility, it would have been very, very easy for a lot of the guys in this locker room to say, you know what? I'm just going to portal out, man. I'm going to save my eligibility. I'm going to get out of here before this four game stretches up. Not for me. Thanks, but no thanks. You didn't see that. Like guys like Kayshawn Butte, who's going to be an NFL receiver. He's, cons he's consistently bought in. He stayed bought in. And you have to commend LSU and you have to commend that locker room for having the approach and the leadership to be bought in in the fashion that they have. They haven't been stubborn. They've evolved as a program, which is sort of piggybacking on that same point. But you saw this team in the first week just kind of look a little bit messy. And I don't think that's the wrong verbiage to use. I mean, they started slow against Florida State, took a superhuman effort to even have a shot at overtime, get the field goal or the extra point rather blocked and, we kind of just left LSU at that game and said, okay, it'll take some time. Got a lot of talent. We already knew that, but it'll take some time. They continued to have slow start after slow start. The Auburn game, Mississippi State game, 
there's a lot of instances where we're, we're kind of just saying, okay, yeah, maybe in a few years LSU will get there. But they have evolved extremely quickly, and that's kind of the combo of the last two things I talked about with buy-in and what the coaching staff put before them to put them in position to succeed. The best example that I can think of from real life that equates to this is in marriage counseling, they tell you whoever you marry on your wedding day, that person that you get married to will be different in year three of your marriage than they are on your wedding day. The marriage between Brian Kelly and LSU has been a really quick adaption and, and evolution. Game one, they're this team that's, quite frankly, a little bit undisciplined, look a little bit disorganized, look out of sorts, and they've evolved and progressed and stuck to the process and gotten better. And I can't stress this enough, the psyche never looked like it wavered. I know there was the whole Kayshawn Butte scrubbing his Instagram, but we got more context and seems like that was more so a, a motivational internal thing than anything reflecting on the program. There has been so much within this program that has continued to be foundational and, and been stable, I think is the right word to use. Because when the offense sputtered against Arkansas, I never saw anybody on that defensive side of the football say offense, get into gear. There was no frustration. There was no pointing fingers. There was, let's keep rolling. Let's do what we need to do to get to where we want to go. Keep the main thing the main thing. Lock arms, move forward. And so... What will they be in the coming years? Who's to say? But I get the feeling that Brian Kelly, with access to talent and access to resources that he has at LSU, it's going to be a fun team to watch. It's going to be a fun program to watch as LSU Tigers. Again, in just the first year under Brian Kelly's regime, are headed to Atlanta to play for an SEC title. Did not think it would happen as quickly as it has. But if you're an LSU fan, you're playing with house money saying, bring on Georgia, baby. Absolutely love it. All right, moving on to the Pac-12. So we're going to jump in our jet, use our frequent flyer miles, find ourselves at LAX because USC is playing UCLA for the victory bell. And this is a rivalry that I got to grow up around. Game kicks at 8 Eastern, so 5 local time. And let me just say this, going to this game as a kid – to put it simply, it is, it is hostile in every single sense of the word. Like, I think the connotation around Pac-12 football is, yeah, it's kind of soft. You have fair weather fans because the beach is right there and there's so much in L.A. to be excited about if your team isn't playing well. Like, I just want to make it very, very clear. When these teams play, everybody is bought in. That is the biggest show in town, especially when they're competitive like they are with two ranked teams in USC finding themselves in the hunt. For a Pac-12 title, absolutely, but a college football playoff berth if they handle their business. For UCLA, they're coming off a tough loss to Arizona. Didn't really see that coming. Chip Kelly and company would absolutely love. They would, they would just revel in it if they could spoil this for USC. That's the kind of rivalry that we have ahead of ourselves. But UCLA, a very confident bunch. Chip Kelly... Obviously disappointed with the loss, but they're not feeling like they you know, need to feel sorry for themselves or hang their head too long. They're ready for USC, and they feel good about their chances. Hinge points in this game. Is the USC defense prepared to bring their hard hat and a lunch pail to this game? Now, what do I mean by that? This is going to be the kind of game where UCLA applies the pressure and forces a blue-collar sort of effort from this USC defense. 
It's going to be four quarters. They're going to run the football out at you, and they're going to make you have to rally up time in and time out to stop what they do offensively. Averaging 6.3 yards a carry, folks, that's good for best in the country. They do what they do. They do it really effectively. On top of that, to complement the run game, they're so successful because of what they do in that read option game. You know it and I know it. We've watched Chip Kelly for a long time as a play caller in his offenses. What he does to playmakers on the defensive side of the ball, instead of blocking them, he says, you know what? We're just going to read you. So whichever way you go, we'll take the ball the opposite way and we'll let our quarterback just kind of toy with you all day long. So the guy to watch here for USC, if you're watching you know, that read go down, more likely than not, it'll be their stud Tuli Tui Pelotu. Absolute dog for them in that front seven, that defensive lineman. He had two and a half sacks last week against Colorado. I promise you, Chip Kelly watched that tape, says, you know what? 49, we're going to read you all day. So that cat and mouse game will be a whole lot of fun to watch. The coaching point for me, if I'm USC's defensive coordinator, Alex Grinch, two things. Boys, got to play gap sound. Don't worry about doing everybody else's job around you. Do your job. Trust your read. Trust your keys. And the ball is going to come to you. Win your one-on-one matchups and play gap sound. Because if you want to get out of position and try and play hero ball, well, this offense is designed to take advantage of that greed. Take advantage of your extra aggression. Before you know it, the RPO game is hitting, the counter is hitting. Like, just play gap sound. Things will be okay. The second point that I'd make, rally to the football. You do the, the pursuit drill every single week. Defensive players hate it, especially at this time of the year, because you're running from station to station, coach to coach, chasing an imaginary football. That has to be emphasized to the nth degree for USC in a game like this. Because like I just alluded to, if you don't rally to the football, they have a running back in Charbonnet who is a really tough physical runner. And Dorian Thompson-Robinson, at quarterback, when he gets in space, they are elusive. They like to play in space, does this offense at UCLA. If they can play in space and kind of have their way and play that cat and mouse game with you, it's going to be a long day for the Trojans. So those coaching points and that whole matchup, the cat and mouse within that front seven with Chip Kelly and DTR in the read option game, something to watch for. UCLA likes to run to set up the pass that would allow them to be balanced. And obviously, if they're able to stay balanced, you would imagine UCLA is then scoring points, something to keep an eye on. Second thing I'm watching in this game, the perimeter war with UCLA's defense. Last week against Arizona, I watched the tape. Arizona pretty much just got what they wanted on the perimeter against UCLA. And when I say perimeter, I mean they're throwing a bubble screen to the outside. You got a receiver blocking a corner. You got a slot receiver with the football. Or maybe it's a jet sweep with the running back going outside and the tight end on a safety, whatever it is. They just dominated them. From a physicality standpoint, they just took whatever they wanted with that UCLA defense on the perimeter. So UCLA needs to come with you know a little bit of extra aggression, a little bit of hot sauce in the Wheaties, if you're catching what I'm saying. Like There needs to be a little bit of an attitude to try and stop that kind of a run game on the outside. Because the trenches for UCLA is solid. If they can't rally up and run support on the outside, USC has the playmakers, the physical playmakers, to make it tough on you. Kyle Ford, a guy to watch. I mean, he is built like an action figure. Whether he's running the football, whether he's blocking, he's going to be a problem for them at the receiver position if they don't, like I said, come with a little bit of oomph against this USC offense because they like to get the ball in space, like to get the ball on the outside. 
looking back towards what USC does running the football, no Travis died for them. Heartbreaking loss for the USC Trojan program. Got hurt last week against Colorado. Got rolled up on. Austin Jones is now RB1 for them. He will see the lion's share of the carries. Is he able to keep this offense on schedule and cause those safeties to have to roll up so you can get the ball outside? Because There's a little bit of supply and demand when it comes to running the football and creating matchups on the outside. If you're not running the ball effectively, as a defense, we don't have to respect anything else in terms of allocating more resources to stopping the run. We can just play our base defense and stop you. And then when you throw the ball out there, well, that's great. We have all our guys in position already to stop that kind of pass game. So running the football will be a, a key to unlocking that perimeter game for USC if you're catching my drift. But if UCLA doesn't figure it out, they're going to be playing catch-up all day. because USC will score on any and every drive they have success on the perimeter. Goes without saying. So here's the last thing I'm looking at, and it's potentially the most important. What happens when Caleb Williams ad-libs and gets off schedule? And he's playing on the West Coast now, so what's unfortunate, a lot of his games for some of y'all is later in the day, and it's understandable, but the Pac-12, the whole Pac-12 after dark thing, that happens later in the day, so we don't see as much of Caleb Williams rolling through our highlight tape at halftime. But I'm telling you, the dude goes to work. And when the play breaks down, arguably is when he's at his best. Kind of a mix of Patrick Mahomes and good Johnny Manziel at AM. Like he gets off script, keeps his eyes downfield, and his receivers, the talented ones, get very much open and they go to work. So when he does, you know, start to ad lib, how does UCLA respond to that? Because last week, I think Arizona laid the blueprint. Jaden Delora, when he got off schedule, had a day, threw for about 315 yards widened that defense to allow the vertical stuff to start hitting. Like they would work the perimeter. And then once they got what they wanted on the perimeter, you would start to see those linebackers widen out. And when you get off schedule and your defense is already widened, guess what? Middle of the field, very much wide open for USC. So right now, Caleb Williams, 31 touchdowns, two interceptions. I'm curious to see if this is the kind of game where maybe the interception bug bites him a little bit. Because you and I both know, whenever a quarterback breaks contain, starts to ad-lib, there is two potentials that become much more possible. One, potential for a big play. Because DB's looking all around, and it's hard to stay plastered to a receiver for the duration of five to six seconds. But the other potential that grows is, well, hey, the play is, is outside of its structure right now. Like, whatever route you were running before, you just broke it off, and you're now scrambling with me. So that's unknown variable also makes for more tipped passes receivers and quarterbacks not being on the same page errant throws so if those equate to turnovers well then we're going to have ourselves a very interesting ball game for USC because you're spotting this offense for UCLA a couple more possessions something you don't want to do especially when it's at their house in the Rose Bowl I don't know what it'll be split maybe it's 50 50 maybe it's not but you feed more ammo to the home crowd not what you want to do Needless to say, not what you want to do for USC. So my prediction for this game, I think it's back and forth. I really do. I think we see a lot of offense. Two of the best offensive minds in college football and Lincoln Riley and Chip Kelly going toe-to-toe in a new city. Going to be a whole lot of fun. Jordan Addison is expected to be 100% in this game. Really his first time in the last few weeks we've been able to see him at 100%. 
I think he makes his presence very much felt in this game. I think he and Caleb Williams' chemistry shows itself in a big way. And I think USC wins this game in dramatic fashion, 34-31. to 31. The Trojans take the Liberty Bell to, I was going to say Los Angeles, but I guess they're both in Los Angeles. They take it back to USC's campus, to the Coliseum. But bottom line, we have USC winning that game. Should be a whole lot of fun. A rivalry game before rivalry weekend. We love it. USC wins. They get the victory bell. Obviously covering that two and a half points by just a half point. Vegas always knows something. All right. Let's finish this thing up right now. Talking about Utah going to Autzen Stadium to play the Oregon Ducks. If you haven't yet, get your questions into Nick Brake and I. We're going to try to answer all those as much as possible. Get those in now so we can keep on rolling. All right. Take a quick sip of this rat poison here for a second, Nick, before we keep going. Oh, yeah. That's the good stuff. All right. Utah going to Oregon in Eugene. Autzen Stadium, a little 1030 Eastern kicks. A little little late night for you. Oregon's favored by three points. Pac-12 title implications are on the line. Oregon getting that bad taste out of their mouth. Took a tough loss last week against Washington. Ran for over 300 yards. Still lost the game. So they're ready to hit that reset button. They're ready to start, you know, moving forward to, you know, the next thing for them. They're, ty- they're tired of feeling that losing feeling. They want to recapture that winning feeling. And doing it against Utah would obviously be a nice feather in their cap going forward as they charge towards a Pac-12 title berth. Now, Utah, they're looking to prove they're still the top dog in this conference. Because if you remember correctly, we saw this same game actually happen in the Pac-12 title a year ago. Utah did what they wanted. They're looking to make sure that it's everybody in the country knowing, hey, this is our conference. Are we a little bit, you know, down this year? Quote, unquote, sure. We need some help to get the Pac-12 title, maybe. We're still the top dog. They want to prove it this week against Oregon. My question for this game, can Oregon capture the edge of that Utah defense? Because I have seen Utah on two separate occasions, once against USC and once against UCLA, have trouble when they get out there in space. And Bo Nix, if he's able to go in this game, and Bucky Irving, they do really well when they get into space. Kenny Dillingham dials it up to getting their playmakers in space. And so the less that Oregon can play this game in the trenches, I think the more that will favor Oregon. Not to say that Oregon can't play in the trenches, but the strength of this Utah defense is in the interior. You make them get out and run around and have to run with your fast guys, I think that favors Oregon. Because if they can't, like I said, you play to Utah's strengths, and maybe the game slows down just a little bit, and you have to recalibrate as Oregon, spotting Utah the chance to then sort of push the tempo on you a little bit. Maybe they get up seven points, and you have to change the way that you play. All that's to say, it's a very big deal. Oregon's a very good running football team, ran for 312 yards last week. Bucky Irving averaging seven yards a carry. Still feed them, but feed them in the regard to where they're not running straight into that stone wall that is the Utah interior defensive line. My question for Utah offensively is, what kind of punches for them are landing? This is very crucial. Tavian Thomas, running back for Utah, is a stud. Averages five yards a carry. Oregon's given up right now 109 yards, so it's kind of a battle of the strengths, if you will. What's their success doing that? Is Tavian Thomas able to pick up three relatively consistently, or is it something where it's kind of a, a pushback? Other 
key player I'm looking at for Utah offensively, obviously Cam Rising. It's kind of the catalyst of the offense, but their leading receiver is not a receiver at all. It's a tight end. Many of you that watch Pac-12 football probably know him. Dalton Kincaid, probably most notable for his career day he had against USC earlier this year. He's their leading receiver, and he's not so much a guy that's going to pop the top on the defense, but in the middle of the field, his matchup issue he gives you as a defense cannot be overstated. He's going to work the middle of the field. He's going to work that corner route, work the the dig route. Like He is very difficult to cover one-on-one with his mix of size and speed for what his size is. Like They want to feed him the football. The reason why I ask what kind of punches are they connecting on, both Tavian Thomas and Dalton Kincaid, in my mind, would be the equivalent of jabs to this Oregon defense. I think this Oregon defense can eat jabs, if that makes sense. Like, yes, maybe they connect a few times. Maybe they score some points. But as long as you're not allowing the haymakers to connect, I think you could be okay if you're Oregon. Now, the haymaker for Utah could be a guy named Devon Vallele. Excuse me. Yeah, Vallele. Don, excuse me. Devon Vallele. He's a dog for them, for Utah, that is. Outside wide receiver. What hurt Oregon so much last week against, U- against Washington, that is, 408 yards passing from Michael Penix. Averaged right around 16 yards of completion. They just hit deep pass after deep pass after deep pass. It is very hard to stay in a fight when you are consistently getting hit with haymaker after haymaker after haymaker. You know that weakens the jaw that leads to a knockout. And Oregon played really well offensively, but their defense just ultimately got knocked out. So is it Tavian Thomas for four, five, six? Long drive by Utah, Dalton Kincaid over the middle. You live with it. You bend, but you don't break. You don't give up the huge explosive play. Or is it like I just said, the explosive play to Valet, deep pass, haymaker, knockout punch, bad deal. Because the Oregon secondary is really struggling right now. Giving up, I believe they're somewhere in the neighborhood of 280-ish, maybe more. But they have to come to play in this game. You can't have the same performance you had last week against Washington and still expect to win this game. All right, Senior Day and Eugene, got to bring your best. If Bo Nix plays, I could see this game becoming a shootout. There isn't any update from Dan Lanning, which is uncommon on him, but Bo Nix came back into the game last week. I get the feel he's going to play. Whether he does or not, we'll see. But if he does play, I think it could be a shootout. Utah, Averaging 36 points a game. Oregon, averaging 39 points a game. What it comes down to for me is I just don't think Oregon loses two shootouts in a row. I really don't. Maybe Utah imposes their will and shortens the game and says, Bo Nix, you got to watch this one. We're going to make it low scoring. We're going to make it ugly. Could see Utah winning that kind of game. When all the dust settles, I think Kenny Dillingham and company continue to play effective flashy offensive football, run the football well yet again. I think Oregon ends up winning this game, and I think they end up covering the spread just a little bit. I think the final score is 44-39. Oregon wins in Autzen on senior day. Enormous, enormous. To this point, maybe even program-defining for Dan Lanning and company getting a big win on senior day. Ducks beat Utah. That will really set the tempo for how this Pac-12 race is going to finish out. I would absolutely love to see an Oregon-USC Pac-12 title game. I think that would be a whole lot of fun. All right, now, the best thing we do on this entire program, you, 
join the party. Had the live chat cooking all, I guess, what would have been now, almost an hour. So if you have gotten your questions in, we thank you. If you haven't yet, keep shooting them in there. Nick Breakkeeper of the queue, the man, the myth, the legend, about to join the program as we speak, has been managing that whole thing this entire hour. But Nick, how we doing, my man? What's what's the latest? What's the good word? JD, what's up? Uh, man, it's, it's dark in here. I'm starting to get tired. You look uh, good, though. You look good. Well, I appreciate it. Got a haircut yesterday. Um, looking looking good, feeling good. Internet's and, looking uh, good, too. We love it. <laughs> oh, we yeah. love to see that, man. Oh, love yeah. And uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us today. Uh, first question we have, JD, if you're ready, um, comes from Lon. Lon asks, what was the jump like? From high school football to Division One football, in your experience, because JD, of course, played uh, for Cornell and then for Baylor as a grad student, um, how much faster was the game for you in college than it was in high school? Uh, then included, love the podcast, let the party roll. Appreciate it, Lon. Let the party roll, indeed. Great question. So my experience was a little bit unique, not going necessarily to like the SEC or anything. Played in the Ivy League, which speed of the game isn't obviously the same there. It's college football, but it's two different sports. I was fortunate to play in a really competitive high school league, played in the Trinity League where you got schools like Modern Day and St. John Bosco. I played for Orange Lutheran. So this is not to, you know, undersell the Ivy League, but I think rather just to emphasize how great that com- competition was. I mean, I played against guys like, you know, Josh Rosen and, and guys that played Pac-12 and, and SEC kind of football. So the, the jump wasn't too great there. Now, when I was a grad student, went to the Power 5 level as a walk-on, that was, you know, quite a an adjustment, if you will. Now, to give a a long story short, never actually ended up playing for Baylor. Got cut short by, you know, medical retirement, um, but was the best thing to happen to me because I got to end up, you know, meeting my wife and falling into broadcasting. So that was a story you didn't ask for. But as a whole, it's definitely a pretty dramatic change going from the high school level to that Power Five level. So it makes sense, especially for the quarterback, the speed of the game takes a while for these guys to get used to. So that's my take on that. But, uh, yeah, definitely an adjustment. That's a great question, Lon. Appreciate you letting the party roll. What else we got, Nick? Uh, Well, as usual, Tennessee fans want to know what it's going to take for them to get in. And, look, we we discussed this a lot. Uh, We'll talk about it later tonight uh, when the rankings come out, of course. Um, So I don't want to spend too much time on it, of course. Uh, But – um, Sealgare O'Shea wants to know what has to happen to allow Tennessee to get into the CFP. Uh, so uh, they, O'Shea says Tennessee's better than TCU. They say, and even would say they're better than 11-1 Ohio State. Um, but of course, JD, as you know, that doesn't matter. It's about the resume. Um, so what has to happen, JD, uh, for Tennessee to get in the college football playoffs based on resume? To make it a lock. Like, to make it not even a conversation, in my mind, you would need, one, a TCU loss, and then, two, you would like the Pac-12 champion to be a two-loss team. Because as we get closer and closer and this conversation develops, the thing that would concern you as a Tennessee fan is, okay, well, what happens when they account for that 13th data point of a USC? Let's say they run the table and they win out, and they're the Pac-12 champion, and They're playing on championship weekend, and we're not as a Tennessee team. Yeah, we got the best loss in college football, if that's worth anything, to lose to the Georgia Bulldogs, but to feel good about it. You would like Oregon or a team like Utah to be the Pac-12 champion and you to sit right there and watch TCU lose. I think you get an over one-loss TCU, even if they are the conference champions. 
and a Pac-12 team with two losses. So that's what I think would lock it up. Obviously, a multitude of other scenarios that could play themselves out. Mm-hmm. Don't think that's the only way, but that's the way for me, Nick, where I'm saying, okay, 99% chance as a volunteer fan, you're getting in that way. Yeah, I totally right, JD. I think you do root for chaos in the Pac-12 because um, now you look. Clemson did you a favor and lost, so the ACC is all but gone. Bama did uh, you a favor. Yes, they did. Yep. Now, LSU uh, could be a problem. If LSU were to win the SEC championship, uh, that could cause problems for Tennessee, Tennessee, excuse me, which leads me into our next question from Troy. Um, Troy wants to know, what's the scenario, in your opinion, where LSU are in the playoff at the four spot? Who needs to win and lose? Um, they've yeah. been trying to figure it out themselves. Also, shout out to Troy. Um, a La Tech logo in their uh, YouTube page. Uh Never, never mind looking at those Conference USA teams represented. Uh, but go ahead, JD. Let's go. Gang of five, baby. Strong mm-hmm. and in the chat. The question was, what would happen for LSU to get into the college football playoff? I think you probably need a similar concoction of what we mentioned with Tennessee, like a two-loss Pac-12 champion probably helps. A TCU loss is non-negotiable. I think if you handle business and have those things happen for you, you would need to make yourself a really strong case by beating Georgia and beating Georgia soundly. Now, what are the odds of that happening? We'll see, you know, when we get to selection Sunday. Um, But I just, I can't get past the fact that if LSU makes a statement against Georgia, beats them by, let's just get crazy here. Let's say they beat them by 14 points. I think that would make it really, really hard on the committee to leave LSU out. So, We'll see. They still, like I said, need some help from other programs. Just beating Georgia alone, I don't think, does it for you. I think you still need some help. But, yeah, Nick, it's it's a narrow path, but a path does exist. Mm-hmm. No matter how much you know margin you have, there is a path there for LSU. Well, J.D., my question for you is, so I'm going to combine these two questions. Love it. Tennessee's one loss. Let's say TCU loses. USC loses. They're out of the discussion. You take the Pac-12 away. And in this hypothetical world, Tennessee's got one loss to Georgia, the best team in the country. LSU has two losses, but they're an SEC champ, and they beat Georgia. Who do you bring in? Do you leave out an SEC champ for the first time, or do you bring a two-loss team in for the first time in LSU? So let me make sure I have that right. TCU loses, and there's a Pac-12 champ with two losses or one loss? Let's say Utah's the Pac-12 champ. Okay, Utah's a Pac-12 champ. Or even Oregon. Okay. So there's a two-loss Pac-12 champ. So I guess the question is, do I take LSU or Tennessee? Yeah. Man. So here's the, the tough part about that, if you're an LSU fan. There's a head-to-head there, right? Like, there's the head-to-head of, I believe it was 40-13 to 13 that happened in Death Valley. If you're an LSU fan, you're saying, but we're a new team. You and I both know we're a new team. Look what we did to Bama. Look what we did to Ole Miss. Like, we have really hit our stride since that game. I understand. I don't disagree. In a 12-team playoff, you'd be in, but that head-to-head for me is just too difficult to get past if I'm comparing Tennessee and LSU. So I think the Vols get in in that situation, Nick. That would be chaos, and there would be a lot of unhappy people in Louisiana, but I do think the Vols would get the nod if it comes down to pick them between those two yeah. programs. Okay, yeah, head-to-head. It, yeah, obviously it's tough, very man. important, even when it's before LSU hits their stride, which does stink for them, but obviously you can't go against the head-to-head. Um, also, Kirby Beverly asked kind of the same question about Tennessee. Hopefully that answers your question, Kirby, and thanks for joining us. Hmm. Um, as always, a lot of LSU fans in here, a lot of Tiger emojis, a we lot of Go it. Tigers. Um, Michael Stamper likes my sweater. Thank you very much, Michael. 
Uh, but the, another question, we'll get back on topic. Uh, Iron Angel AJ says, being that Michigan and OSU play, one is out, how can Tennessee possibly be left out with their schedule and their dominance this season? So we're going to go back to Tennessee, J.D. Yeah, so I think the question there is, how does Tennessee get left out if it's between a, a Big Ten program? Is that is that the question? Well, see, saying? how I see it is, okay, so given that one of those teams, Michigan or Ohio State's going to play out, mm -hmm. is there a way that Tennessee still misses out? Because they're more than likely going to be five tonight. So if one of those loses next week, you would think that they pop Yeah, in. yeah, that's fair. So then the, the issue you run into in my mind is, okay, so TCU is a team that I think a lot of people are just assuming is going to take a loss somewhere along the way. I mean, they're favored against Baylor in Waco. Waco's a tough place to play. Still, they're, you know, they're going to be having their work cut out for them there. They're, according to Vegas, we'll win that game. Come back home, play Iowa State. If you're looking for a loss for TCU, I think the Big 12 title is maybe the most intriguing spot to look at because they'll have to play somebody a second time. Looking like it's going to be Kansas State. Kansas State, a team that they actually had to come back on to eventually beat um, so that, so that's one, right? TCU, if they lose, that opens up a spot. Um, I believe the, the question is Tennessee over a big 10 program. Well, that's even what, a conversation, right? Well, what the question, it sounds like to me is, is there any world where Michigan and Ohio state lose and mm -hmm. drop out of the top four and Mich given being at five right now, Tennessee would naturally gotcha. pop in. TCU would move up to three. Is there a situation where another team leapfrogs them? Let's say a USC. Um, I, I don't think there is. I think that these Tennessee fans are getting a little worried, but I think they can relax. Yeah, that's fair. So I guess the question then would be Pac-12 one loss champ, USC, or that Tennessee program? And I, I truthfully, I don't know what the committee would do. If, I, if it were me making the decision, I would lean towards Tennessee. Not because we have a lot of y'all in the chat right now, but just because you have a one loss to the best team in college football right now, which is the Georgia Bulldogs. Lost by two touchdowns on the road, out there, place, like all that. And you have five ranked wins. So from a resume perspective, even if USC finishes the year really strong and has that 13th data point, I would have a hard time telling Tennessee, hey, thanks for playing, but you can't come to the playoff. The committee may decide otherwise, but that's how I would see that shaken out. But again, in a perfect world, if you want to lock it up, have TCU lose and have a two-loss Pac-12 champ and you're dancing. That's how I would see okay. that playing out. Yeah, I think so too. Um, JD, man, I'm telling you, the LSU and Tennessee fans want to know how can they get into the playoffs, so I'm really happy they're here. I love um, it. New Orleans P even brings up another point about this uh, situation. What if LSU wins out? And this is a really good point. Can the committee take into account that Perkins didn't really play in their two losses? That's an interesting hmm. thought. That is an interesting thought. Should the committee take that into account? Probably. The unfortunate reality of right now, and I mean unfortunate is probably not even the right word. Unfortunate for an LSU fan is you take the whole resume, right? So as of today, that Florida State game matters just as much as that game against Arkansas where Harold Perkins went absolutely off and where y'all beat Alabama, like all those things. And so that's truthfully why I think we tune in every single week to college football because the regular season matters so stinking much and we love it, but teams progress throughout the course of a year. And unfortunately, that loss to Tennessee and that loss to Florida State will sort of hurt you. And Nick, to kind of be blunt here, if you want to shift blame, it's on that coaching staff for not playing Harold Perkins earlier. Maybe yeah, it's on Harold Perkins point. for not being ready to play soon enough. He's been a mm -hmm. force for them, but if he wasn't on the field, 
somebody's to blame. And so I will say this, though, to say that Harold Perkins is the reason or not playing Harold Perkins is the reason why you lost those two games, you know, it's all hindsight's 2020. Um, But so I guess to answer the question, probably doesn't play a factor for the committee, but uh, 12 teams coming. So if that's your thing, that's coming. And LSU would, in my mind, undoubtedly be in a 12-team playoff uh, if they were to probably finish the year out and be a SEC runner-up. So awesome. we'll see. Okay, well, let's put the SEC to rest. No more SEC questions. I think we got them all out. Um, and plus, we've got a lot of other questions coming through. Sacred Gaming, thank you for asking this again because I lost it in the heat of all the other ones. Hmm. Uh, USC versus UCLA playing this weekend. Who's the better quarterback in this matchup, J.D.? Mm, good question. So DTR, probably one of the more slept-on quarterbacks across the country. Plays for UCLA. You probably saw him last when they played Oregon because that was a game that was before everybody's bedtime. Caleb Williams, for my money, is one of the most talented, if not the most talented player in college football. I'm not saying he's the best player, but I'm saying just based on what God gave him, he is a generational talent. And so I would say Caleb Williams is still, I think, tapping into what he's capable of. And for my money, 31 touchdowns, two interceptions, even with all the weapons around him, still extremely impressive what he's done to this point in the year for USC. So if I'm picking somebody in that game, just from a quarterback standpoint, I'm riding with Caleb Williams. Mm -hmm. Good question, though. I like that. A little Pac-12 love, huh? Yeah. the best coast. Yeah. You know, I was like when that's involved. Ambasaw Beanie, how about this one, JD? Love it. What ranking do you think Florida State will get tonight? Ooh, so they were, what, 24 last week? I don't even know where they were last week, Nick, uh, to be honest with you. I think they, yeah, hold on. I can check for you, J.D., but I'm, you know, I think. Yeah, I, think I mean, right, they're rolling. I mean, right here's, the, here's the reality. Whatever they're at right now, they're going to have a very good chance to continue climbing, and that game against Florida is going to mean a whole lot. I think low 20s is still probably where I would put them. I don't think I, I move them up too, too much. I'm not putting them into the top 15 or top 10 or anything, but – as long as they keep winning, you're building, you know, towards a, a really positive 2023. And you wanted to see improvement in this year, right? Like the number for Florida State this year, I believe, was right around eight wins is what kind of the vibe was in Tallahassee. Get us to eight wins. Show us that there is some ROI from the past few years of Mike Norvell, and we'll keep building. But they've been a great story the past few okay. weeks, yeah. Nick. Yeah. What, what were they last week? Well, Nick? they were 23. Okay. Uh, Illinois was 21, though. So yeah. that's probably one spot. UCF was 22. Um, move up. Washington were 25. Mm-hmm. Uh, so keep that in mind um, because Washington had a big weekend. Huge. So uh, I don't know. We'll yeah. See. I think low 20s is probably mm-hmm. right for them. 2019 is probably like as mm-hmm. high as I would put them. But yeah. from that 20 to 25 range is still really solid. Let's mm-hmm. just call our shot and say we'll put them at 21 tonight, Nick. How about okay. that? 21. Okay, Love yeah, because Texas is 18. I don't know if you really are going to put They're gonna drop. them behind Florida State. I don't. I don't know. It's going to be tough. Yeah. I'm glad I'm. I'm not responsible for making that decision. Yeah. Tulane lost. Yes, yeah. Exactly. I mean, a lot of movement in that you know, lower 19, part of the top 25. Yeah. Okay. Well, that yeah, that's a great answer, JD. And like I said, it's a good thing I don't have to do that because it's giving me a headache. Um, I mentioned Texas losing last week. Uh, JH22, I think, always asks this question, and it's always a relevant and timely question. What's your diagnosis on Quinn Ewers? How do you think he'll finish the season? And then I'm going to add, uh, is he going to be the guy next year? Because that's what I want you to answer to. Yeah, that. yeah, that's very fair. So here's the thing on Quinn Ewers. After that Alabama game, everybody's expectations for him ramped up even more. 
And my guy didn't even finish the game. Like, he got hurt in the first quarter, but you saw the potential. You saw the arm talent, the, the you know, the, the poise and being able to push the ball downfield to Worthy and all that. Like, that just kind of ramped up our expectations to a place where I don't even know if they were really reachable. The way that I feel about Queen Ewers now is probably just a more assured version of what I thought at the beginning of the year. Kids enormously talented, has all the tools in the world. It's going to be a process. It's going to be a ramp-up period. Texas is in year two under Steve Sarkeesian. Now, Texas and their whole climb back is under year like 10. I understand that. And so there's a lack of patience there. Let this process play itself out. Quinn Ewers, from an age standpoint, should be a true freshman. I know he got in a college weight room and in a college meeting room for Ohio State. Maybe that helps his maturation. Maybe it doesn't. But what I'm saying is what he is right now is still a project. And so there's going to be a lot more good still coming with Quinn Ewers. Newsflash, there's also going to be some bumps in the road. So as long as there's not this sort of, well, we expect him to be a Heisman Trophy winner and expect him to take us to a national title, like he could do all those things. But you have to understand there's still a progressive trend upward that I think Quinn Ewers and Texas alike are going through right now. So in terms of next year, my understanding was Arch Manning is going to redshirt. Like I think that was what... I would imagine I would want if I were Arch Manning, like, hey, let me have another year to yeah, sit behind a guy absolutely. like Quinn Ewers, be in this system, be in this meeting room, be in, be in the weight room. So all that's to say, I think it's still Quinn Ewers' job next year. I know it hasn't been perfect, but I got kind of what I thought we would get from him. He's a dude. He's a baller. Reminds me of, uh, this is high praise, but I would say they haven't had a guy push the ball deep like him since Colt McCoy. But yeah, we're, it's, 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 you know, Let's temper expectations. Let's temper criticism okay. for a while before we get more uh, more data on young viewers. Give them some time. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, couple more questions. You got some time, JD? Let's do it, brother. I yeah, do. I got all the time in the world. Um, look, there's an argument that it kind of uh, fizzled out, but I want to see your input here. Uh, Randy Hodder is in here just absolutely uh, letting the world burn. Let's go. Um, a lot of talk about Clemson. People want to know, you know, can they get in? I don't think there's a shot. Yeah, probably um, not. Sorry uh, about that. Randy, I guess, is a Big Ten fan of some sorts. One came in and said uh, Penn State beats Clemson and TCU. Whoa. Um, really quickly, hot J.D., take. is hot this take. a hot take or do you agree? A uh, little bit hot. A little bit hot for me on this side of the whole operation. Now, mm-hmm. you know, who knows? Maybe we get end up getting that uh, in, a, in a game scenario. Penn State Clemson would be really interesting. Penn State TCU would also be intriguing. The thing about Penn State is what we have in our minds from a snapshot perspective is bad loss to Ohio State, bad loss to Michigan. On the scoreboard, it is. Keep in mind, Penn State was very much in both those games at half. Uh, They gave Ohio State actually a better game than they did Michigan. But, yeah, I mean, Maybe I'd buy Penn State over Clemson just because Clemson's really struggled offensively and I can't get a Notre Dame game out of my head. Uh, Penn State TCU, I think that opening line would be really, really close. Mm-hmm. So he's not crazy. Uh, a bit of a hot take to just act like it would be not even the game. Like, I, I don't buy that. Mm-hmm. But I'd love, I hope we get that in the bowl game, Nick. That would be a lot hey, of fun. Hey, we'll find out. I yeah, hope so, absolutely. Um, Kirby Be- Beverly uh, asked a question really quick. I'm going to address is there a fear that Arch decommits? Um, if so, where does he land? Kirby, uh, every Monday and Thursday at around 11 
uh, Central Time, uh, 12 Eastern. The Inside Scoop with Josh Newberg drops. Talks to Chad Simmons. Yes, uh, sir. Sam Spiegelman. So many great uh, recruiting experts that know a lot about that. I can let JD fill in, but uh, if you have questions about commitments and decommitments, uh, Josh Newberg on our YouTube channel. Phenomenal. On the On3 YouTube channel. Yeah, JD. Phenomenal plug. Yeah, if you haven't yet subscribed, mm-hmm. one, because of this program, but two, because of the Inside Scoop. Josh Newberg, one of the best in the business has all the insight and more. My feel on it, though, I can't imagine Arch Manning's decommitting. What I think gets lost from a a fan perspective is, hey, this kid commits to a program. If the program does poorly, they decommit. It's not always that simple because at the end of the day, recruiting is about relationships and sort of selling the, uh, the future to a recruit. Arch Manning committed to Texas. Yes, he committed to Steve Sarkeesian. And the offense is the same. The progress that he believes he can have under Steve Sarkeesian in that system is the same. Like, I think that, honestly, what they have right now under Steve Sarkeesian in Texas is, I mean, it's progress. I mean, he committed to Texas. We need to remind everybody. He committed to Texas when they were 5-7 and seven the year before. Yep. So point. they're getting better. Like, this is not a, a program that's just, you know, a dumpster fire. It's an upward trend. They're going to, you know, be better in the future and – I would be wildly surprised if Arch Manning decommitted, so I won't even get into that. I don't think Arch Manning's yeah. decommitting, Mm-mm. and uh, if he does, I'd be very surprised. No, no shot. I agree, J.D. Um, two more questions. Let's do it. Uh, Mr. Anderson172 wants to know if they're crazy. They said USC gets some key defensive pieces in the portal, and they can be a title contender. Is that crazy, J.D.? I don't think that's crazy. I don't, I don't think that's crazy at all. Now, you still have to put those guys in position, right? Because they got some pieces right now on the defensive side. I'm really looking to those trenches because we've seen USC at times get run on a little bit. I mean, the Stanford game wasn't close, but Stanford ran for, I believe, over 200 yards. Um, We saw the Utah game. Utah ran the football really effectively. So for me, if I'm looking in the portal and I'm USC and looking at the defensive side, let's look at that front seven. They got some good players right now, but let's add depth. Um, Let's get some more guys at key spots on the interior that can play. I think that would be another ingredient to allow USC to to be a Pac-12 title contender like they already are right now, but even more so a college football playoff team and compete with teams like Oregon, who's only going to get tougher, compete with teams like Utah, who every single week plays that tough brand of football. So I think USC is definitely going to be portal shopping, and I think the interior of the defense needs to be a place they address. So no, not crazy at all, but Mm -hmm. yeah, when, uh, when that portal opens up, you better believe the Trojans should and will be active. Okay, good answer. Um, look, another question popped up a little bit, so we'll address it l- really fast. Because I it. think Mark Timberlake has asked this a couple times, and I guess I skipped over it. Uh, he wants to know J.J. McCarthy or C.J. Stroud, who's the better quarterback. I think that's a quick answer, Ooh. J.D. C.J. Stroud, yeah. C.J. Stroud. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. G- uh, good question, Mark. Not crazy um, to ask, but yeah. C.J. Stroud right now. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Um, last question. I think we end with this question. Love it. Frequently. Uh we're not going to ask you who your national champion is. No college football playoff talk. But We'll get there. We're going to get we're there. We're going to get there. Yeah. Yeah, this is a question. Subscribe, and we'll, we'll make sure we get there for you all. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You can see that later. Uh, but first and foremost, Montana Harris wants to know, J.D., who is your Heisman pick? Ooh. Okay. So riffing on that whole C.J. Stroud, J.J. McCarthy thing, right now, for my money, it's C.J. Stroud and Blake Corum one and two, flip that however you want. In the game of all games, assuming both programs get through this week undefeated and healthy, I think that will be the perfect stage 
for whether it's Stroud or Corum to have a Heisman kind of moment and carry that into the Big Ten title game and win. So I actually think the winner of that game will likely win the Heisman Trophy for Ohio State if it's C.J. Stroud. And if it's Michigan, I think it'll be Blake Corum. Both have had phenomenal seasons. The thing that I wonder is, is it just a quarterback award? And maybe if Hennon Hooker ends the year on fire and something goes Tennessee's way, you know, does does that bring him more into the mix? But if I had to pick somebody today, just based on it being a quarterback award and based on really what Vegas is saying, I would put money on C.J. Stroud. But again, the Michigan-Ohio State game will determine who the front runner is going into championship Saturday. But that's a great question, Nick. I, I yep. love that. And uh, we probably should do a little Heisman segment here at, uh, so. at some point. Maybe yeah. on Thursday. What do you say? May, yeah, maybe. We'll, we'll talk about the Heisman. That's a question that we get asked about every time, maybe three or four times every segment. So, uh, yeah, let's talk about it, J.D. I love it. Let's so do it Heisman. Heisman coming on Thursday, yep. baby. Folks, okay. like I said, we are live again at the same time on Thursday. Nick, appreciate you holding it down, brother. Yeah, man. I'll see you then. Hey, happy birthday to my mom, by the way. Um, but yeah, we'll see you later, JD. Let's go. Happy birthday, Mrs. Break. Gave birth to a legend. <laughs> Love it, man. Awesome. Well, folks, as always, we appreciate you so much tuning in, spending some time with us here on the channel, tuning in live. If you missed this whole operation live, maybe you're tuning in late in the last 10 minutes. It's okay. We're on podcasts, Spotify and Apple, wherever you get your podcasts, you can listen back to the hard count. I keep saying it. We're going to get some questions from that podcast feed soon. So make sure you're subscribed there. Make sure you give us a five-star review. Leave a question in the comment section. We'll make sure that we get to it. All right. Also, very, very important. Follow me on social media at JD Pakel on Twitter and on Instagram. We post a lot of open-ended questions that we can then incorporate to the show on Twitter. And also, on Twitter on Horn here, uh, we give out gambling picks on my Instagram, exclusively on my Instagram. And we're up six games right now. So if there was ever a time to follow me on Instagram and to start betting with us, now would be the time. You rode out the cold streak. We're starting to heat up. Jump on in. Follow me there at JD again on both Twitter and Instagram platforms. Gosh, I can't believe this is a job. It's absolutely hilarious. Incredible. College football is the best thing ever. We're so glad we get to experience and have this interaction with y'all. Appreciate you tuning in the show. Again, we're live on Thursday, 1 Central, 2 Eastern. Talking the Heisman, apparently. Going to break down Ohio State's game. Going to talk about Tennessee versus South Carolina. Don't want you to miss it, all right? So until then, we're going to keep the party rolling, and we will see y'all next time. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.